folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and hybridness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Baza blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com, also all one word. And procure a copy of that book, Amanda Works at the Farm's official store, which is at The Farm Podcast. That is The Farm Podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon on the lowest tier. You get two additional full-length shows per month with exclusive gifts and content. And all access patrons also get a monthly Zoom party, a couple of State of the Union addresses per month, and a lot of updates on all the ongoing investigative work I'm doing and so much more. Okay, so with that out of the way, on to today's guest. He is now officially a recurring character on Farm. You get that title when you're around your fourth or fifth appearance here. I can't remember which, but he's very close to that number. He is the curator of The Weird Part, a blog dedicated to 14 and paranormal phenomena, weird crime, and all kinds of other odd beliefs. Folks, I give you guys the one and only Vincent Treewell. Vincent, some, thank you so much for dropping by again this evening, sir. Oh, thank you for having me, Stephen. Happy to be here. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to have you on. So, all right. Tonight, Vincent and I are not going to be talking about Wisconsin for a change. Actually, I, I probably shouldn't say that as it seems can't like... can't guarantee that, Matt. Yeah, yeah. This is the kind <laughs> of discussion that could lead in a lot of directions. I can't make that promise that we won't get into Wisconsin, folks. Don't hold it to me. But we are going to be talking about a recent novella Vincent published called Cosmic Collusion. It deals with some very metaphysical and esoteric themes that we've explored regularly on the farm in the past. But more importantly, it also attempts to address what a viable future society may look like. If you've heard some of my recent appearances on other shows, you know this is a topic that's been on my mind a lot lately. You know, it's one thing to talk about how awful and shitty the world is. We all know that, you know, you're preaching to the choir. The bigger question at this point is, what can we do about it? And what is the alternative? That's really the big thing. I think that's on everybody's mind. It's a subject we desperately need to explore more, especially with the current state of affairs. So on that note, let us start the show.
right, Vincent, to start off with, what is the genesis of this work? You're exploring some really heady themes as we will get to in a moment. I'm guessing you didn't embark upon this work in a whim, so what brought it about, sir? Well, it's, it's things that I've been thinking about for years and that I felt were better addressed through fiction necessarily than through writing like a more political science type tract or book, you know, that would have statistics and, you know, charts and things. Some things are better talked about through the means of fiction. And I wanted to look at what would be a two possible societies a couple of centuries in the future. If humanity survives, what will that look like? And, well, I wanted to discuss a number of um, topics that we talk about on this podcast and my podcast and several other podcasts in our world, and but talk about them through the lens of fiction, where you can really, you know, you have more freedom than when you're, you know, when you have to provide footnotes and stuff. So that's kind of where this came from. Um, I've funny, always, I was I was but, actually just going to say, like, I bet you uh, you tried doing the Chicago style citations uh, for about a chapter or two, and you were just like, no, <laughs> the hell with that. But it just yeah. happened, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've, I, yeah, yeah. No, no. Keith Allen Dennis, my research partners, who's got me into doing the Chicago style citations, and I still curse his name every single time I sit down to write something now because of it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. With you, but yes, yes, yes. It, it's a burden <laughs> that's one that's the great part of um writing fiction is you don't have to do that much research you know and that's just kind of you know that's a thing well it's not the research usually that's the pain in the ass it's it's citing the research man i mean yes you never the think documentation about it, but it's like just trying to find out like where like the city like a book was published in sometimes i mean this can be like utterly infuriating and it's like technically to do a proper chicago style citation you need this information it's just like one of those things like ah you know i mean these are like especially when you're dealing with non-fiction books it's like come on guys you know this is what they're going to be used for like why isn't this shit like easily accessible you know yes yes that's often true <laughs> uh sorry i had to tell the rant. <laughs> no no I, I i feel you I, that happens uh so anything else you got on the genesis here with it well, well the very kernel of this was actually an assignment my wife had in college like over a decade ago where it was a religion class and they asked, well, how would a prophet be accepted if they showed up in today's world? And what would the public reaction be? And that idea kind of floated around with me for a long time. And finally I got it out and put it on paper and went with it and i i found that to be a fascinating question yeah no it totally is it totally is all right and also you know aside from uh avoiding the tremendous burden of citations and all this other good stuff like what do you see as some of the other advantages of fiction as a medium for these kinds of ideals as opposed to nonfiction? well you can create a whole world and have people look at it and you know some of the best writing about the future wasn't necessarily accurate. Like some of the people that 
influenced me in doing this. And this is in no way like a comparison to being at that league at all. But it's just some of the people who influenced me were Philip K. Dick, um, who wrote these fascinating novels. None of that stuff ever came true. Like, you know, he, he analyzed today's society by looking at a future society. And, you know, George Orwell did the same thing. Upton Sinclair, um, Robert Heinlein did some of that. And those guys were really able to make points about today's world by projecting a future world. And that's kind of what I wanted to do here. Besides some of those authors, were there um, any other ones that you drew inspiration from or just in general, um, other artists that might have influenced you, musicians, film directors, that kind of thing? Yes. Um, well, let me see. The, the movie, The Time Traveler, um, was probably the one starring, and now his name is going to escape me, uh, the more recent one. Um, was probably more influential than the actual H.G. Wells novel. Um, time travel's a factor in this whole thing. Um, as far as the writing style, and the reason this is a novella, it's only 141 pages. Um, and if I may just briefly, it's four bucks as a Kindle on Amazon, uh, seven bucks as a paperback. Put together, you can't get one of those adult Happy Meals for that. So consider that. Um, anyway, I, I digress. Um, the writing style that I do is heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. And by that, I don't mean all the Cthulhu stuff. And I mean the, the way that he wrote, where he just cuts to the chase. Often his protagonist doesn't even have a name or is written first person. I was doing this and then this happened. And he kind of cuts through all the character development and all of the, the stuff that you're supposed to do and just gets to the meat of the ideas that he wants to talk about. And that's, that's what I did here. And that's why it's a short novel. It's a novella because I didn't, develop every possible angle i just talked about the stuff that i want to talk about and this guy exists so we can get to this point and talk about this and that is to me very much the way lovecraft wrote and that's why his stuff is usually so short that i mean other than at the mountains of madness he didn't really write anything long and i love that i, I love being able to read one of his stories and then you know we've gotten to the point. I like Stephen King. I always have, but I can only read his short work because his novels just go on and on. And I don't, you know, really, really do that. Um, I love his short work. I've read all of it, but um, those would be kind of probably the, the, the two biggest influences. Yeah, no, I definitely feel you on King. That's um, that's also kind of like what happens when you've sold enough books to the point where like your editors uh, cease having any real control over um your output. Yeah, and that's undoubtedly true. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, it, it, I think it was really like around the '90s when a lot of King's books started going off the rails in terms of like just the 
the length i mean like the stand was really long for instance but i mean it had like something like 20 major characters you know i mean it's about the end of the world you know there's a lot of meat on the bone there to justify a book that's around like a thousand pages long but something like insomnia not so much um, but <laughs> yes. i the stand is one of his his few really big novels that i've ever finished and yeah that that was as you said that was worth it that was packed with material some was just kind of you know yeah yeah not I, there you can kind of see the progression i think a little bit with like the dark tower series because like the first the first one's like a little touch and go because that was one of the earliest novels you wrote but the second and the third ones just are fantastic in terms of just the sheer writing and it's you know i mean it's just really very epic plots that i mean are very much like straight and to the point uh wizard and glass is pretty solid too though i always kind of thought it would have worked better as a prequel than a full-blown part of the series but by the time you got to wolves of kala or whatever it was called like i mean by the knots man i mean that was kind of like at the time where it's like Okay, I'm going to do a plot line that totally rips off the Magnificent Seven, which in turn ripped off like Red <laughs> Harvest, which is, a, you've, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that, but it's a Dashiell Hammett book that's just freaking amazing. Uh, it's been the basis for, you know, um, Ujimba and uh, Fistful of Dollars. I mean, it's inspired so many great movies. Oh. Um, uh, the closest there's ever actually been to a real adaptation of it was actually Bruce Willis movie, Last Man Standing. Um, it's a great private detective story, but. Yeah. Oh, and I love that. Um, that movie never gets the replays it should on cable. Yeah, yeah. I always thought it was underrated, too. Like I said, it's the closest that you, we ever really got to an actual Red Harvest adaptation, too, which is why I was. Uh, always kind of predisposed to it but you know red harvest it's basically about the continental op a private detective for an agency modeled on the pingertons who comes into this town that's kind of in the middle of a, it was based on butte montana i think uh it's huh. kind of in the middle of a war between like the union and um the coal company and the uh the private detective basically <laughs> takes the uh war to its logical conclusion uh, but it's a great book, but I mean, it's, you know, it's only like about a hundred pages or something. And I mean, King is more or less using that whole storyline and yeah, he tries to make it into like a five or 600 page work, which is just absurd. And yeah, that's kind of a reoccurring theme for some of the latter Dark Tower books, which is real tragedy because it's such a phenomenal series otherwise, except for a few overwritten books that come in later. But yes, it's, it's good that you avoided that, Vincent. And um <laughs> You know, I must, you know, I'm personally, when I, you know, kind of look for inspiration, though it, I'm sure it doesn't come through in my own writing, but when I look to inspiration in terms of just style and that kind of thing, I typically look to Hemingway. Uh, not because, you know, I think that Hemingway was necessarily the greatest plot, as, you know, he had the greatest plots or characters or anything like that, or even that, I mean, his books are necessarily, I mean, that great, you know, don't get me wrong, I do think some of them are great, but there's a lot of them that are really mediocre too, but just his ability to convey stuff in so little, was just such a limited vocabulary, deliberately limited vocabulary, was just to my mind always phenomenal, 
I mean, if you've never read one of his novels before, oh yes, it's almost I, I, all I okay, okay. It's almost all dialogue, really. I mean, Hemingway when he gets into like narr, you know, like the narrative parts, you know, it's like maybe three or four sentences. It perfectly captures the scene, and then just from there, you go into the dialogue that tells the story. It shouldn't work, but it does. Uh, <laughs> I think it's kind of. I like- remember a quote from him that in. He was, you know, some hyperbole, but he was saying, I write like every letter is being tattooed on my back. And (laughs) I can definitely see that. Yes, that narrows it down to, you know, I don't say too much. I say what needs to be said and then stop. Yeah, that's that's a good way to do it if you can do it. Yeah, that's always the problem with writing, you know, is it's just it's kind of like the same thing with music, how they always kind of say like the. um the hardest note in music to play is uh, the empty bar where there's no notes at all on it. Because everybody always wants to fill the space with something without ever kind of realizing sometimes silence is the best. And in writing, um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, a lot of times, in fact, less is more. You know, I mean, if you can uh, describe something accurately in one or two sentences, that's probably the best thing to do. You don't need to try to write everything like William Faulkner or one of the romantic. <laughs> so yes indeed all right well we probably then digressed i guess enough about uh stylistic stylistic preferences for writing and so forth so <laughs> let's get into some of the book's themes here and hopefully we'll whet the appetites of those listening so first off vincent you know you mentioned time travel plays a role in this so do you think time travel is real yes i do um i will take a stand that I don't claim to be able to prove it, but do I believe it's real? Yes, I do. Um, I think that if you look at the advances in technology that we're and science that we're making now, and we're able to see that linear time may be an illusion, um, that it may there may it may be real, but not necessarily have to flow only one way. Um, I don't pretend to fully understand, let alone be able to explain quantum mechanics, but there is research going on there that I believe shows time travel being a real possibility. And remember this, if we ever develop it, then it's always here. I'm talking real, you know, I'm not talking like the sort of fluke tricks that would happen in Einstein's theories if you go 99.999% of the speed of light. I'm talking regular, like real time travel, like in the movies, yes, where you're able to go back and forward in, in the dimension of time. If we're ever able to do that, if we develop that a thousand years from now, then it's already here. And so, yes, I, I do believe that it it exists, it will eventually be discovered. And then it will always be here because people will be coming from the future to now and to the past. And yes, so I I believe that it exists. All right. So let's take it to the next level then. Are there time travelers among us and do they affect events currently playing out? I absolutely believe there are. Again, that's not something that you're going to be able to prove, but there are 
things that indicate that to me as a very likely possibility. Now, I think it has finite limits. I don't think that, for example, I don't think you can go back and kill Hitler because doing so would preclude you ever having that mission, you ever existing, that there would be limitations on what you can do. You can probably only fiddle with things around the edges. You can do a certain amount, but you can't do drastic things that would cause drastic changes. Um, To give a couple of examples, I think that a lot of the anomalous Fortean um, artifacts, things that show up in places they shouldn't possibly be, are evidence of time travel. That, for example, footprints that are modern human footprints, frequently wearing shoes, show up in places that, you know, this is like a million-year-old lava formation. There can't be somebody walking in boots on it. That, that, that cannot happen. But yet, there sure as hell looks like it. That's, that's exactly what it looks like. To me, that is an evidence of time travel. Um, his name escapes me, Cremo, uh, the guy who, did he write Forbidden Archaeology? I believe that's the book, where he has a lot of examples. And he takes the impression that human beings were just here like two million years ago. I don't think that that's realistic. I don't think that works with any sort of evolution of any kind with any development. I think it it more shows time travel. It shows that people went back in time and explored 2 million years ago. Um, That makes, that makes sense to me. Um, And there are numerous, you know, 14 objects, things that show up that where the hell did this come from? This, this can't be in this time period. And yet there it is. Um, in a more, in a different type of evidence, the Mandela effect, and I hate that they call it that because I don't believe it affected Nelson Mandela at all. I think that has a totally different explanation. But there are widespread memories that many people have, millions of people have, of things that in our current consensus reality didn't happen or didn't happen the way we remember. And yet we all remember it the same way. And that to me is evidence that time travel has occurred and has changed something in the past, which led to other changes. Uh, One little example, but it's to me, not little is the spelling of the word dilemma. I remember as a youth, having to memorize D-I-L-E-M-N-A, the silent N, as a spelling word. And I remember it being a hard word because it had that silent N. Well, it doesn't have a silent N. It's just M-M-A. It spells like it sounds. But yet, I have known people And we weren't talking about paranormal stuff. I was talking with one of my doctors 
And she had the exact memory of having to memorize that as a spelling word. Well, where does that come from if it didn't happen? And yet there's no documentation at all. You cannot find documentation that was ever taught with the silent N. So yeah, I, I think that there is evidence that time travel is real and that time travelers are amongst us. Yeah, no, I think the Mandela effect and just the fact that it's become so widely uh, reported by people. I mean, I know, you know, they're, conversely, there's an attempt to dismiss that because of the rise of social media and the, um, you know, I mean, kind of tried to depict it as a mild form of mass hysteria or something like that. But I mean, it just seems like there's something more to it. And also, um, I feel like the frequency too. I mean, it seems like certainly like in the last decade, these kinds of occurrences have been happening to a lot of people uh, much more regularly. And um, in a lot of cases, maybe multiple times, uh, much more so than the past, which I think is you know one of the reasons why it's more evident now to people. Um, yes. And I think that we, social ahead, media yes. has magnified it, but that's because we communicate about it more. It pre-internet, we just sit around and just think that that stuff happened and we wouldn't like challenge each other. Yeah, I mean, and it's always been, you know, kind of like, a, you know, I suppose like a precursor to it, you could maybe point to would be something like deja vu, for example, in that kind of sense. Oh, yeah. But um, OK, so another question, though, about the time travel angle that I bring up here. What about... Because, again, the notion of time travel, I mean, it's been pretty popular in some occult circles and some of the more woo-woo circles in some cases uh, since around at least the end of World War II. And then it's uh, kind of gained new life recently. But uh, within Kenneth Grant's cosmology, it's kind of a big thing. And then the same thing as well within some of the um, the newer stuff that does uh, you know, accolades from the cybernetic cultural research unit and their kind of magical system have been pursuing. Um in a lot of cases, you know, this sort of involves like taking your consciousness to sort of an alternate reality or something to that effect. Uh, you know, in some accounts, it's like a twin or an evil earth where time moves backwards or something like that. But basically, you know, your consciousness is able to observe uh, the past, the future and all this other good stuff. So, I mean, when it comes to time travel, is this something that necessarily would manifest as like a physical, you know, uh, phenomena? I mean, you know, we're kind of just assuming that somebody would, you know, show up and, you know, DeLorean. I mean, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, you know, but no, I, I fully I think a little more yes. dignified, maybe, than a DeLorean. <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, you know, just a guy will walk out like in a suit or something. But I mean, is it maybe possible that instead of, I mean, you know, a physical manifestation, it's actually uh, possibly coming from, you know, maybe in the future we develop a means of uh, projecting our consciousness into the past or the future? Or if some of the more woo-woo new age stuff, I mean, turns out to be true, we've ascended whatever beyond our physical forms. I mean, if we're in that state of being, is that possibly how we are visiting the past? That would make a lot of sense to me. Um, now, given I'm, I'm a sucker for the DeLorean, okay, I really want the kind of, you know, you step into this elevator type room and you step out into the future or the past. But realistically, it may be much more of a spiritual process, much more of, I don't know if spiritual is the right word, but if you can travel outside your body, 
geographically, it seemed like you could travel through the dimension of time as well. That why would your astral body, and I am not mystic enough to know the details on this, but why would the body that travels outside of your physical body be hindered? If it's not hindered by gravity, it's not hindered by physical distance. Why would it be hindered by time? So that makes a lot of sense to me that you would be able to travel through some sort of astral projection through time. That Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. And that there may be beings who are from the future or even from the past that are interacting with us for purposes of their own. That would not surprise me. Yeah, it is a fascinating concept. Um, and then one other possibility I could always throw out there too, simulation theory. Um, again, you know, I know that's kind of a mixed <laughs> bag for a lot of people, but I mean, once again, assuming that this is all a simulation and God knows, I mean, maybe it's a simulation of a simulation of a simulation of a simulation and all of this is already played out in some distant future and each variation on the simulation that was built to predict that future is just, you know, kind of going through the endless cycle of discovering this. Once again, that also, I suppose that, that is possible. You know, I I can't discount that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is kind of an interesting, I mean, concept, especially if you know, uh, who knows? I mean, if there's some way that I mean, we would be able to theoretically communicate with one of our other selves in some of these other simulations or something like that. That was more at a, at a later date or something. I mean, it could be our own. Uh, avatars or whatever that uh-huh. i'm traveling i mean who knows so and the multiverse there's always the if there's an infinite number of realities then there might be ones really similar to our own that we kind of accidentally just, walk over to i do find the simulation i threw that out there because i mean also there's a lot of the you know kind of reported encounters people have with like their doppelgangers i know that's been uh, chalked up sometimes to time travel but i mean again that kind of assumes that you would figure out a means of um traveling in time you know within a, a period where you still looked i mean identical to when you uh, encountered yourself you know so uh, yeah it does kind of bring some interesting questions about some of the other uh woo-woo stuff that has been reported over the years as well yes indeed um i and i don't want to belabor it but have I ever told you my doppelganger? Yes, story? yes, I you did. Yeah. You know what? Yes. I didn't tell it because it was, I think it was a subscriber show, but what the heck? Okay. Mention it here. It was just a very strange. I didn't see my doppelganger, but I had a broken tooth. And so my wife drove me to the VA hospital, and my son came along. And while I was at the hospital, and I was conscious the entire time, I was never sedated. It was very minor and brief not important. Um, they went to Walmart and when I, when they picked me back up, they were freaked out that there was this guy who looked just like me, who was dressed just like me. And well, I, and I asked my son, well, did he talk? He said, yeah, but he sounded just like you. And the problem was he was there with a different family and he had a different wife and different kids and it was just it was a very weird thing 
Now, could it have just been coincidence? Could it be just mundane? Some guy looks like me? Sure. Yeah, absolutely it could. But it was weird as hell at the time. And it absolutely freaked them out. And it freaked me out hearing about it. And it's like, who is this guy? And why does he have this other family? And is this part of the multiverse or something? I don't know. But yeah, that did happen. It was just a weird thing. Yeah, like I said, when you get into the whole time travel thing, I mean, it definitely opens up a lot of other uh, interesting possibilities. But I'm certainly glad that you uh, had incorporated that into Cosmic Collusion because, I mean, it's I think the time travel thing is something that tends to get overlooked a lot in the high strangeness community because, I mean, it, to some extent, I mean, I suppose it is rather absurd, but I mean, it does, I think, have a certain appeal to it, at least to my mind, more so than some of the other things that the community gets hung up on. And, uh, <laughs> certainly, I still don't think that it has anywhere near the um, giggle factor as um, Tartar, for instance. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't even counting that in the community. I was thinking that was just people that yeah 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 yeah. Uh, yeah anyway i'm trying to be as diplomatic as possible so i'm just i'm gonna pile on the tartaria people i'm sorry guys but come on guys it's tartaria (laughs) that our educational system has failed that's that's (laughs) what that means yes oh goodness so you're saying then you didn't incorporate any of the tartaria mythos into your time travel hypothesis in the novel then no not at all (laughs) how could you have not thought of that (laughs) in the future we don't we don't have any of that that stuff (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's all i don't want the star trek future i just want us to evolve beyond the tartaria mythos yes (laughs) <laughs> that's good all right uh in an interesting sync i was uh i was recently asked uh if i believed profits were still active today i do uh, in case you're wondering uh it would appear that this is a theme you delve into heavily in cosmic collusion as well so how do you estimate the world would respond if the apparent messiah emerged today as uh you had noted to the beginning that this is uh, kind of the question that drove the book in the first place Yes, I think it would be extremely divisive. And I think you would see some very strange bedfellows. Um, I think some religions would handle it perfectly. I I don't think the Buddhists would be upset at all. I I think they'd be fine. Um, I don't think that it would cause a great disturbance among the Hindus. Um, some other people would have some real problems with it. Um, the, and this is something that I talk about a lot in the book that there's a real symmetry between fundamentalist Christianity and between materialist reductionist atheism that they, and they both come after anybody who was a modern day Messiah, especially if they could do miracles. It's funny that the people who are waiting the hardest for Jesus Christ to return would immediately assume that anybody like him had to be 
the Antichrist. That that would just be the go-to answer. And no matter what this person did, and no matter how pure their actions were, it would not be accepted at a fundamentalist. And when I say fundamentalist, because I don't mean to separate, I mean, I don't mean to lump all Christians together. There are a lot of Christians I have a lot of respect for. Yeah, I, I'm assuming you're kind of talking about like kind of the literalist um, interpretation of the Bible that typically you find in certain sects of Protestantism. Yes, the, uh, precisely. And the obsession with the Antichrist and the people who, and some of these are manipulators. I don't believe that they even really believe that Obama was the Antichrist. Okay, this is just nonsense, man. Come on. You know, but anybody who came forward and was bringing a message from God and was doing miracles and wonders would be attacked immediately by that wing of evangelical Christianity and by the Christopher Hitchens type of atheist. They would immediately both surge at this guy or woman and, you know, make them out to be the worst thing possible. And I I found that fascinating that those two groups would find common cause so quickly. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I think it makes actually a lot more sense than people would really would initially realize simply because I think both ideologies were really a product of uh, the paradigm that began to emerge uh, during the Industrial Revolution, um, which in a lot of ways was frankly far more traumatic, I think, for humanity than, um, you know, for instance, the rise of the Christian era is often depicted as being I mean, it was in a certain sense, but I mean, uh, you know, transitioning initially from the pagan era to the Christian era as, you know, defined by the Roman church or the Eastern Orthodox ones and that kind of thing, or certainly like the Celtic church or something like that. I mean, it didn't really represent a major shift in worldview. I mean, you still viewed the world as being alive with supernatural forces, with magic being a part of it. I mean, yes, yes, there's a different hierarchy in the Christian worldview where you have God at the top and then, you know, sort of the hierarchy of the angels and, you know, on down the chain, the fallen angels, the pagan gods um, of old, the demons, that kind of thing. The but, saints who replace yes, the pagan deities. The, the saints, know. but you still see the world as being enchanted effectively and alive with supernatural forces that have to be appeased or fought with or something or other you know it's not that dramatic of a change of pace whereas when you get into the industrial revolution you know it's a very different thing i mean now you're totally going through the disenchantment of the west every you know the magical world is under total assault everything now has to be seen in a literal view um and that's really i think uh in a lot of ways why protestantism and i know this is something a lot of secular materials would hate to hear but it was really a natural and necessary uh evolution in the step towards secular materialism because i mean it was the first step i think to really strip the supernatural from the world by trying to go to this really narrow literalist interpretation of the bible that de-emphasized the miracles and all of this other stuff um, and yes, I mean, that's Martin Luther um, 
getting rid of all of the things that he considered unnecessary and false in Catholicism. But those were a lot of things that people relied on. Yeah. And there's a lot of folk religion and that was a lot of, you know. Well, yes. And the festivals, the pageantry I mean, yes. sort of stuff, because, you know, again, I think that the, you know, I mean, the older churches, I mean, obviously the Eastern ones as well. I mean, they were well aware that there were certain times of the year where there were energies, different kinds of energies that you had to focus on one goal or other. That's frankly, I think a big reason why that there was such an emphasis on a lot of these, you know, feast days and things like that. And, you know, a lot of times it was, it was a positive thing, you know, I mean, you know, this was a big part of creating a sense of community, a sense of belonging, a sense of being in people. And, you know, you took that away. And I mean, this was sort of coinciding with, um, you know, the end of uh, most of humanity existing in agrarian societies, we were being herded into the cities. Uh, to work in factories i mean that was kind of another reason why there was this push to kind of disenchant uh you know humanity from this uh perception of the world and you know yeah you take like, a millennial old well system. pretty much i mean since the, you know i mean this is like kind of the worldview we don't the way we've lived almost since the very beginning and then yeah i mean you're in just you're so stripped from the natural order of things which really you know didn't even happen in the early christian era i mean not remotely to the extent that it did with the industrial revolution um, yes I, I i would concur completely that yeah it was traumatic for people you suddenly you grow up you're a farmer you're in tune with the land you get up with the sun you go to bed with the sun you go through the cycle of the seasons and suddenly you're in a factory and you just show up at 6 a.m. and you pound out widgets for 12 hours and then you go home and it's like that six days a week. And it's like, that's a drastic traumatic change for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, I think that it's, you know, it's very much reflected in the belief systems that really emerged out of that and why I think, you know, kind of ultimately, uh, it explains a lot of the negativity that you do ultimately derive from, I mean, this really narrow fundamentalist version of Christianity that's become so prevalent, um, you know, because of the new apostolic reformation and these kinds of characters on the one hand, and then the other hand, I mean, the secular materialists and the atheists and so forth as well, because I mean, it is such a, uh, you know, I mean, it's experiencing the world in just such a frankly inhuman fashion that it's uh, created, I mean, almost this negative perspective of it in general. Yes, I, and I've always been kind of fascinated with the how doctrinaire the new atheists are. That, okay, I get you, you don't believe in God, that, that, that's fine, okay? Um, but you're sure that there's no human soul? How can you possibly know that? You can't know that. I can't prove there is one, but you sure as hell can't know that there's not one. You know, that just seems crazy to me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, God, I remember there was TED Talk, I think, that I saw with one of the really prominent new atheists. He was, um, it wasn't Stephen Hopkins, but it was like one of these big um, science figures as well. Uh, but more or less, I mean, the, the the gest of the talk was that life and existence was meaningless. 
And it's just like, how could you even possibly know that? Like, <laughs> how is it scientific to even proclaim that? Yes, like, and that's they claim the mantle of science, but a lot of what they're saying is completely faith-based, just as much as anything Jimmy Swaggart says. Okay. They don't know that. You don't know that there isn't a human soul. You don't know what happens to us after we die. You're guessing, but you're claiming the mantle of science, and you have no evidence either way. That well, that's not science. You know, that's just your your faith, you know, which they would deny as a faith, but it it still is. And people talk about the comforts of religion, that it, you know, it it feels good for people to feel that they'll go to heaven after they die. But it also feels pretty good to not feel that anything will happen after you die. You just lights out, just game over. That also comforts people. And that doesn't get mentioned as often that a lot of the new atheism is based on just what they find comfort. And I feel it is a faith unto itself. Very much so. Very much so. Well, Let's shift gears here from uh, time travel and some of these more philosophical tropes and get into some extraterrestrials for a moment here, or the perception of extraterrestrials um, for those ultra-terrestrial fans out there. Uh, <laughs> have quote-unquote aliens used the idea of God or gods to manipulate humankind, Vincent? Oh, I absolutely believe so. Um, I know that the ancient aliens theory has taken a pounding lately, and for some good reasons. Um, the way it's presented often is, well, there's no way these primitive tribes could possibly have built this thing. And it is a racist trope. And it is, you know, just historically inaccurate. But do I believe that beings who are not human have interacted with humans over throughout our history and they've often come wearing the masks of whatever gods we already worshiped yes yes i do believe that i you know basically that's something that uh, jacques valet has said and you know in messengers of deception and um passport to magonia and Yes, I completely, and something Keel talked about a lot. And I believe that they have, and they, I don't claim to know who they are. I don't think that they are just another civilization on some other planet that commutes over here. I, th I think they've been here for a long time. And I think that they are somewhat like us, but are not us, but interact with us and need to interact with us for some reason. And that they played the roles of gods for many thousands of years and used that idea to manipulate us up to the present day. Um, that currently, you know, there are UFO religions and I mean, more than a few. And I believe that that there are real beings 
and it may be the nine, it may be somebody else, but there are real beings that do use godlike imagery to influence us for their own purposes. Yeah, I do believe that. I mean, another question that I have to sort of ask is, um, you know, is it possible to sort of find like a middle ground between the extraterrestrial and the kind of ultra terrestrial perceptions? Because it seems like, especially as I've started to study Neoplatonism um, and Hermeticism a lot more, I mean, there's obviously been the long-standing practice of uh, theurgy or angel magic or whatever you want to call it. But I mean, this goes back um, at least to ancient Egypt. I mean, it's something that uh, humanity has been doing for at least several thousand years now. And the general process is one of either ascension or dissension where the human soul or consciousness, whatever you want to view it as, ascends through, on the one hand, the planetary spheres up to um, what you could perceive as the Godhead uh, in a lot of traditions, such as in ancient Egypt, this was seen as charting a, or, you know, kind of understanding what the process of death would be like for the soul upon the uh, end of the physical body. Because again, in a lot of different traditions from around the world, um, it was actually perceived of as the human souls as coming from outer space. In a lot of cases, the Milky Way. This is also true of um, some of the Eastern Woodland tribes, uh, North America, for instance, and a lot of other traditions. So it does have a fairly universal following around the world. Um, <clears throat> so again, well, again, at least based again, theoretically, based on what we know uh, in the archaeology that we've been allowed to see, that's always a disclaimer I like to throw in there because I do suspect a lot of this has been covered up and altered. But based on the evidence that we have available we can say that this has a lot of uh belief throughout the world and then there's also the sort of uh alternate to that the whole kind of concept of dissension or drawing down the moon the notion that you can draw one of these planetary consciousnesses down into you or into some kind of vessel like a statue or in this day and age maybe a tv even or a computer or something like that where it can communicate with you but again, you know, kind of getting into the whole notion of contact, I mean, this kind of seems like what this is hinting at, but in this case, the extraterrestrials are much more etheric. They're not necessarily physical beings as they are commonly depicted in uh, a lot of the extraterrestrial um, perception or perceptions of what the extraterrestrials be like you know in terms of showing up in like a nuts and bolts flying saucer and being um you know physical beings and so forth but again it does kind of beg the question well i mean if we can do this kind of astral travel and this type of thing um it maybe stands to reason that other uh intelligences would be capable of doing this and if so would it really be necessary then to i mean go to all the trouble of trying to transverse um the solar system or something like that when you could just uh visit i mean through your consciousness or possibly even take control of uh, a being here or an inanimate object or something and use that to um you know i mean uh, operate in the physical world that makes a lot of sense that once you set aside the need to physically come here in a ship you know, that's made of metal or something. And you are just, you're a spirit. Well, a spirit 
wouldn't be limited physically. And yes, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me that we may, I don't discount, you know, the ancient ideas of, of the Egyptians, of the Native Americans, that maybe we do go to the Milky Way. Um, I won't discount that at all. I don't know what happens, but that, that seems like something that could happen. Um, and could other beings come here? Well, sure, especially if they don't have to build a craft, they can just travel, you know, their, their soul can travel here. Yes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it is a uh, an interesting concept. I mean, especially when, you know, you kind of look at, I mean, some of these ideologies like Neoplatonism, which really was a religion more than anything else. And I mean, some of its precursors in the uh, fates of Egypt and Babylon and so forth. I mean, uh, you know, I think as Chris Knowles has been trying to tell us for years, I mean, all this stuff is really kind of an ancient astronaut religion in some form or other. Uh, it just happens to be... Um, <clears throat> in a far stranger fashion than we had ever possibly imagined but again you know it's um when you look i mean again at just you know how a lot of these sort of ancient megalithic structures are centered around the earth i mean obviously there's a lot of uh, compelling evidence that the ancients did this specifically uh, to harness certain earth forces in terms of you know what we could think of as ley lines or tell most more more probably more likely telluric currents or something to that effect um, yes, you know, I, mean, I think absolutely. You know, a lot of these uh, megalithic structures were also oriented towards uh, certain stellar, interstellar phenomena, that kind of thing as well. Uh, so it does kind of stand to reason, I think, that uh, if the grid system does exist on Earth in some form or other, I mean, it may well also exist, I mean, throughout the, um, the solar system even. Oh, yes. I, that made me think of Emanuel Swedenborg and the interactions he had with angels where they took him to different planets and they were the planets of our solar system oh well you you know even when you're going even further back i mean the book of enoch i mean that's yes yes you know, basically enoch is you know taken up and taken through the solar system and shown i mean one of the different planets um, yes and some people would be quick to point out that well you couldn't really go to venus because it's like 900 degrees okay but if your soul is going there if your astral body is going there it doesn't care what the temperature is you know it doesn't care what the atmosphere is because it didn't need to breathe oxygen you know yeah I mean, I mean it is a strange concept but i mean increasingly you know it does kind of seem like a lovecraft might have been a little closer to the truth than we had imagined <laughs> yeah. the ancient gods i mean kind of being part of outer space and just in general i mean the um i mean almost mystical relationship that it has with earth um you know again i mean i suppose why we were talking earlier about how we've stripped a lot of the uh the supernatural and the mystery of the earth itself i mean i think we've done a lot of that with outer space even more so oh yes yeah we just look at it as rocks that you know we're going to land this machine on this rock, but there, there's a lot more to it than that. I'm sure I, I don't discount astrology now, not the, not the nonsense newspaper astrology, but real deep astrology. I, I think, you know, has a lot of validity to it. 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to the just the relationship that all of the planets have in the solar system, how they interact with each other, and I mean, the effect ultimately that they have on us and this planet, and you know, possibly, I mean, other kinds of entities and other, you know, uh, parts of the solar system, the Milky Way. I mean, who knows? But um, as I said, there's a there's a lot to uh, there's a lot out there to make an argument that there is much more interconnected to this than you know what we are allowed to uh, discuss typically in a polite society. Yes, yes, indeed. You mentioned Lovecraft, and that just made me think of. I, it was within this last week that there was another news story about the moon of Saturn, Enceladus, I'm maybe mangling the pronunciation, but it's a ball of ice, but it's warm inside. And they're increasingly thinking there may be life there. And nobody seems to really think what that life would be like, that they never see the sun and it's water. So whatever that life is, is in total darkness, in water. Well, that, you know, makes you think of a few things, you know? Yeah, and, yeah the abyss for one. Uh, yes, yes. Well, yeah. And the Lovecraftian beings. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if they develop, instead of developing technology, because they couldn't develop like fire or met- metallurgy or anything like that, but if they developed astral travel, then, you know, they would move about that way. And you'd be dealing with some very, very strange entities. Yes, well, possibly Cthulhu does indeed lie dead, not, well, not dead, but sleeping. <laughs> All right, Vincent, uh, while we're already getting into uh, some controversial topics, I know there was another can of worms that you I really wanted to get into. Uh, so on that note, could a one world government ever be a good thing? Okay. Um, first, I'm just going to make sure I make a big disclaimer. I suggested that Recluse ask me this question. Okay. Um, Don't and worry. If, they're, they're, they're already apparent preparing the, uh, the oil and the torches for both of us. <laughs> so if anybody wants to get mad and say he's one of them now, no, I'm speaking. He asked a question that I asked him to ask, and I'm giving you my answer, which may not be his answer at all, okay? Um, views of the guests may not represent those of the management, as they used to say. Um, anyway, yes, I do believe. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. No, but do I think just because something can't happen tomorrow doesn't mean it can never happen. Do I believe that there could be a positive, good for humanity, legitimately not scary um, one world government? Yes, I do. Um, there, this used to be much more mainstream. There's been a decades long campaign to demonize the idea that the new world order is going to make a one world government and it's going to be a hellhole. Okay. In the forties and fifties, when we were a little closer to world war two and atomic bombs had been used for the first time, a lot of very mainstream people believed in trying to create a one world government 
so that we would not have World War III. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Okay. Um, I look at it like this. I'm from Wisconsin. There is no love lost frequently between those of us from Wisconsin and those from the fine state of Illinois. But Wisconsin and Illinois are never going to have a war ever, ever, ever. Okay. And that's a good thing. And that's something that we could do on a worldwide basis. And it would be based upon the blueprint of the United States of America, the constitution. I, without going into some deep Masonic conspiracy that I don't believe exists, there were a bunch of Masons that put together the constitution. That's just fact. Um, most of the people who signed the constitution were Masons. The model of the constitution of states having a certain level of autonomy, but cooperating as part of a whole is in the future, something that could be replicated on a global basis that we could have a situation where the countries of the world are like the states of the United States. And, you know, we can disagree with each other. We can be very different from each other. Alabama is not Vermont, is not California, is not Kansas. But we don't go to war. We've only gone to war once, and that was a long story that's really not connected to what I'm talking about here. We could have a system where countries are part of a larger whole and where war really doesn't exist. And I believe that that could be a better future for all of us. I do think that there are certain obstacles. Once all of the major powers are democratic republics, and I certainly am not naive enough to believe that we are the democratic republic that we should be, but we're a hell of a lot closer than China. Once the major powers in the world are all democratic republics, I believe that we could have, we could, if we choose to make it happen, we could have a one world government that wouldn't be something terrible and scary. It would be a United States of Earth, the way that we have the United States of America and the way that they have a European Union, which is practically a United States of Europe. Um, yes, I believe that could happen. I'll wait for the applause. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll play devil's advocate here. So yes, please. I don't think that a one world government, well, I think it is theoretically possible, but it's not desirable, but not necessarily for the reasons that would commonly be um, brought up. Uh, because it would be, you know, to institute some kind of satanic plot or something like that. I, I do think that it would be horrendous and it would collapse, but primarily because uh, for reasons that um, 
about all of the great uh, and large empires collapse over the years, be it the Roman Republic, the Soviet Union, and frankly, possibly the European Union in the upcoming years. And there's usually at least two factors to that. One, I think, is the complexity when you get to these large um, political systems that has to play out. There's so many different organizations you have to go to to try to get anything done, which can be very problematic. And again, I'm not a libertarian by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not saying, you know, that we need to, on that note, abolish like the Department of State or, you know, something like that. But I mean, ultimately... You know, let's not kid ourselves. There is such a thing as too many bureaucrats. And um, typically, the bigger the political system becomes, the more problematic that can uh, become an issue. But the more pressing thing that I think when you get to these large political hierarchies, which is almost always their downfall, is corruption. Nepotism sets in. Cronism sets in. Uh, despite, I mean, really, I think the best attempts of mice and men, you know, you're almost not going to be able to avoid that uh, after a certain amount of time. And when corruption starts to set in, it makes the entire ecosystem, which is already, as I kind of noted before, a lot more unstable than people may realize, um, makes it teeter even more, if not outright break. So I think this is like one of the bigger issues with that. And again, why in a lot of you know uh, ways, even though despite the uh, projections of many on both sides of the aisles, on the one hand, a lot of utopian thinkers and globalists, on the other hand, I mean, a lot of the Alex Jones types and what have you, the one world government is inevitable. I don't think that that's the case. And I mean, I think with... Um, you know, this issues that a lot of these large geopolitical bodies like the Soviet Union and even, frankly, the United States, the People's Republic of China, and certainly the EU have had in the last couple of year, decades have demonstrated that um, it's, it's hard keeping these entities together and stable, and uh, it may not even be possible as we go forward. So that I think is, you've I think you've identified some very real problems. Go into something that, else. Yeah. There's like another point though I want to make though. Here. Oh sure. Okay. Then I'll let you like respond. But so that being said, another thing that I want to bring up too, you know, sort of going back to what we were talking about the trauma before with the uh, paradigm shift with the industrial revolution. Well, something else happened with that, and that was the Westphalian peace, which is what really initiated the modern day nation state. So this is you know something that I think we have to really keep in mind. The nation state is not this sort of like ancient concept or anything like that. It's actually like a comparatively new ideal that's only, you know, really spread to a lot of the rest of the world in the last, you know, maybe 100 years or so. Okay, so I think one of the problems when we sort of get into like what a global society would look like is we're trying to impose the structure of a nation state in a global society, because, I mean, ultimately with the rise of technology and assuming that you know we don't go back to the stone age which there is a greater chance of than a lot of people i think realize at this point in time but you know assuming that we continue integrated um you know through technology i mean it's inevitable that we are going to have a kind of globalism but again i have to question is it do we necessarily need a world government to have that i think is a more pertinent question because i mean one of the big you know social kind of constructs that's had a lot of success in recent years is the whole concepting of networking. I mean, this actually really grew out of the new age and um, 
you know, as kind of uh, wild as that is, but I mean, it was uh, gradually spread into you know, several corporate uh, structures, especially within the tech industry. And it's had a phenomenal amount of success. And I think bringing people together across the world. So, I mean, I think that this is like maybe the kind of thing that we need to start exploring more is the notion of networking and giving people the ability through technology to find like individuals and build communities that are much more organic than in the past that were largely driven uh you know by uh necessity of trade or by like distance and that kind of thing I mean it was close to you I mean again and that's not to say that we don't need strong local communities I mean that's another thing that we're absolutely freaking desperate for now we become too transplant we become you know so isolated from each other but I think we need to work towards something on the one hand with um, possibly a concept of revived concept of networking where we can have a kind of integrated global order that's used to sustain local communities, local townships, you know, that kind of thing, you know, that can bring together organic communities. It's something that we can, I think, theoretically do and maybe do better than we've ever had the ability to in human history. Um, we just have to avoid killing each other in the end. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I guess, and you've you've pointed out some some you know some real problems with the idea. Um, corruption is just a cancer in every society, and when you reach a certain tipping point of those in power being completely out of touch with everybody else that society tends to fall apart and we are staring that in the face um russia is china is um a lot of places you know already are in that situation and yeah i mean that's that it's a really difficult problem i guess i would see that if you were able to have an objective like a, a clean one world government, a where nepotism wouldn't be a factor because the institution is so huge that it doesn't really matter who your family is. Um, it's like the old concept of civil service that if you had worldwide civil servants enforcing laws that we can all generally agree our right, um, basic human rights, um, not destroying the environment, not killing the last of whatever endangered species. I think something like that could work. Um, I mean, that is my perspective for what it's worth. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a complicated uh, question, no doubt. Oh, yeah. So, okay, I, I kind of presented a bit of my thoughts on future societies, what they could look like. Do you have any uh, anything else to add on what a future society may look like? I, I Just a couple. Um, are we good on time or? Oh, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, you're fine. Okay, okay. Um, in the coming centuries, and I, that's a pretty bold statement, but um, hey, for what it's worth, I'm, this is my opinion. I think there are going to be some drastic changes due just to technology. 
as you mentioned, you know, globalism isn't even like, I'm not talking about the, you know, the, the kind of um, the scare tactic of globalism. Oh my God, globalism is coming. Globalism is already here. It's already happening. You can talk to somebody in Britain or Thailand or wherever as easily as I'm talking to you right now. And that changes the whole world from where it was within our lifetimes, you know, and that's only going to accelerate. And I think that that will lead to certain inevitable changes in world society. I think that in a century or so from now, there will not be the kind of ethnicities where everybody has like a fairly defined ethnicity. I think the concept of ethnicity is going to disappear. Um, Not instantly, but gradually over time. And I think you can see this in America, specifically among, regardless of other subsets of of other demographics, you can see this just among white people. How many white people do you really know who are 100% Italian, 100% Irish, 100% German? Practically none. I mean, even being white is kind of a construct of being all these other things from Europe. I can extrapolate that, that eventually we will all just be humans. Um, that the concept of ethnicity is going to disappear. Just and it, not through some forced new world order program, but just normally and naturally, it just won't be the way things are 200 years from now. That would be my speculation. I also think that we will gradually, over time, develop a language that we can all speak. It may be English. It may be something else that kind of evolves. But over time, I think that we will have a universal language because it'll just be so much more convenient. And, you know, that that will change things. Um, In the book, everybody has these bizarre mixed up names because everybody in the future is beyond, we, we actually will reach a point where we're beyond ethnicity. And that that's just not a concept they have 300 years in the future. So that's, that's my take on it. So why in general is it, do you think it's so hard for people to kind of, uh, you know, I mean, come up with like novel ideals now for, I mean, a future world that we're kind of heading towards. It just seems like there's a a general lack of creative thinking in this regard going forward. Is it just because of the times it becomes so dark now that, I mean, we're incapable of seeing the light? I think that is a very good description. Um, that we, you know, we're hit nonstop with bad news. And it's hard to see that, yes, there's a lot of bad things going on in the world. But you look 100 years ago, 
And this would be really great compared to the way things were that recently. Um, and some experts have come out with books and stuff that were actually living, despite everything, we're living in among the least violent times in human history. That It doesn't sound like that. It doesn't seem like that. But if you look at the amount of violence per capita going on, we're actually in a really low period in human history. Um, things can be better, and we can make them better. And a lot of these seemingly unsolvable problems, well, they they do have solutions. I I absolutely believe that that we we can solve these things. One, we have a lot of politicians, and I certainly don't mean only on one side. We have a lot of politicians who benefit from problems not being solved. Once we actually try to solve something, I believe that we can. And a lot of it is a matter of getting a popular movement together, getting a will to take care of this issue. And then, then we can do a lot. I, I believe that. That's, that's my take. Well said, sir. We are getting to the end of things here. Is there uh, any uh, final notes you want to leave us with on your uh, novella? Um, well, I I like it. <laughs> Hopefully some other people who do get a chance to read it will enjoy it. It's 141 pages. Uh, it won't take a big chunk out of your life to read. Um I just put things in there that I found interesting. And I think that people that listen to the show uh, will probably find a lot of those things interesting as well. Absolutely. Well, Vincent, thank you once again for dropping by. It has uh, been a fascinating conversation as always. And uh, thank you guys again so much for listening and for all of your support. And on that note, we shall sign off for now. As always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blues got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat chain. We were ready. My people there, they feeling me. More characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in the stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat
Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what? 